Hello, and welcome to ACS Chemical Biology's podcast for September 2008. I'm Eric Martins, Managing Editor for the Journal. I'm joined by our Assistant Managing Editor, Anirban Mahapatra. Welcome, Anirban. Hello, everyone. In this month's show, we feature four research papers and one review. These papers represent the cutting edge at the interface of chemistry and biology. In one paper, researchers in Sylvia Cavaniero's lab explore movement of nascent polypeptide chains as they emerge from the ribosomal tunnel. In another article, researchers in Christopher Walsh's lab characterize enzymes involved in the synthesis of andromid, an antibiotic that targets membrane biosynthesis. We also feature a review from the lab of Craig Lindsley on G-protein-coupled receptors. Moving on to another article in the current issue. Research spearheaded by Shi Chen describes combinatorial chemoenzymatic synthesis and high-throughput screening of sialocytes. Also in this issue... Researchers led by Penny Boyning and Mark Williams have used single-molecule force spectroscopy to explore the DNA binding properties of the alpha subunit of DNA polymerase 3. We will be talking to Dr. Boyning later in the podcast. We will also be talking to James Williamson, the senior author of a paper in the August issue that describes pathway-engineered enzymatic de novo purine nucleotide synthesis. In addition, we will be chatting with Hugh Rosen, the senior author of a paper in the same issue on the identification of agonists of the sphingosine 1-phosphate receptor. Now we'd like to highlight some interesting content that you'll find only on our website. In Ask the Expert, we give you the opportunity to pose questions directly to top scientists in the field. Our current expert is Dr. Jim Inglesey, Deputy Director of the National Institutes of Health Chemical Genomics Center. He'll be fielding your questions about using high-throughput screening to identify small molecules that are effective tools for studying proteins, cellular functions, and biological processes. Submit your questions for him today at www.acschemicalbiology.org. To learn more about the junior authors of the papers in the current issue, please see the Introducing Our Authors feature in print and on the web. This month, we meet eight young scientists, Thomas Bridges, Harshal Chakwala, Jamie Paul Ellis, Pascal Fortin, Shen Shu Huang, Cam Lau, Mika McCauley, and Yana Sefchikova. Read this section and get a younger chemical biologist's perspective on the research. We are now joined by Dr. Jamie Williamson, professor in the Departments of Molecular Biology and Chemistry at the Scripps Research Institute. It's a pleasure talking to you today. Hi, Eric. Research from your lab in the August issue of ACS Chemical Biology describes a general method for isotopic labeling of the purine base through biochemical pathway engineering in vitro. I'd like to first ask a very basic question. Why synthesize nucleotides enzymatically instead of chemically? Right. Well, I think what you're really asking is, is why go to all this trouble uh, to do this and, and make these nucleotides when you can just get them from nature? So, so if you bind nucleotides from sigma then uh, it's, it was isolated from biomass. And, and there's actually chemical synthesis methods that were worked out decades ago to make nucleotides. So the key motivation is actually isotope labeling. So we want to introduce carbon-13 or N15 atoms into the nucleotides. And the fact is when you introduce isotopes, the whole economy of synthesis changes completely. So the precursors are extremely expensive, and doing those organic syntheses, even though they're worked out, you might not be able to get the reagents you need in C13 or N15 form. Uh, 
Hmm. So that's why we set out to uh, to do enzymatic synthesis. So can you tell us a bit about your design of your strategy for the enzymatic synthesis? Well, we had worked out some methods previously to make nucleotides from preformed bases and starting with glucose, which is an easy source of C13. The problem was it was still difficult to get the labeled bases. And so we wanted to come up with a way to label the bases. So we said, why not just add on to our enzymatic synthesis all the steps necessary to make the purines de novo? So then it's just a matter of getting all the enzymes to work together in concert. So this requires recycling of all the cofactors. So you need ATP and NAD to fuel the reactions. And uh, in fact, one of the factors we had to recycle was folate. And that's you can't buy that with the C13 label. So we had to figure out how to synthesize that and reuse it. So it comes down to recycling all the cofactors and then driving the whole cascade to the products with lots of fuel reagents, which are, in this case, phosphate and reducing equivalents. Hmm. You also described the synthesis of an RNA oligomer incorporating a labeled purine. How does incorporation of this purine alter its NMR spectra? Well, the isotope labels allow you to selectively observe those nuclei using NMR. So, so carbon-12 and nitrogen-14 are the natural abundance nuclei, and those are inactive for NMR. So all NMR spectroscopists want to introduce C13 and N15, which are NMR active, uh, and to, to allow uh, sophisticated multidimensional heteronuclear NMR experiments to be done. So the standard trick in NMR is to observe the protons that are attached to carbon-13 or N15. And so now we can do this with, with RNA. And finally, can you tell us a little bit more about um, future applications for these nucleotides? Well, what, what these particular nucleotides will let you do is tailor the spin system in the base for optimal transfer of magnetization from one side to the other. And this is a real problem with these complicated rings. Uh, and that's, that's a problem that's separate from spin magnetization transfer that you do in proteins. Uh, the other thing that you can do is introduce nice isolated spins that allow you to do NMR relaxation measurements to measure dynamics. And the other thing which we haven't really done yet, but uh, we have planned in the future, is there's some really interesting mass spec experiments. So you can dial in specific mass shifts by putting one or more carbon-13s or N15s. Uh, you can do metabolic labeling studies to, to figure out where things go inside cells. So we look at this purine method as a toolkit that allows you a flexible array of synthetic methods, and, and we hope that there's many downstream applications that this enables. And so do you, do you feel the strategy will be widely available for other people? So I think there's a pretty large barrier to actually cloning and expressing all 28 of the enzymes that you need to do this. So I, I, I imagine that people who are highly motivated can, can repeat it, and we'd be glad to help them do so. I also think there's a possibility that this might get commercialized. Uh, if you only need you know nucleotides like this once a year, it doesn't make sense to go through the whole trouble to set it up. So, so it, it remains to be seen how this plays out. But what I do think is going to be generally applicable is this idea that you can recapitulate biosynthesis in vitro and make some very complex transformations occur uh, in a single pot. Well, that's really exciting. Thanks for joining us today. Okay, thanks. Nice talking to you.
We continue to define ChemBio glossary terms on the air. This month's key phrase is allosteric agonist. An allosteric agonist is a ligand that is capable of receptor activation on its own by binding to a recognition site that is distinct from the orthosteric site. We are joined today by Dr. Hugh Rosen, Professor of Chemical Physiology at the Scripps Research Institute. Welcome, Hugh. Hi, Annie. Good to be here. So in this paper published in the August issue of ACS Chemical Biology, you've studied the sphingosine 1-phosphate receptors. What processes do these receptors mediate? These are G-protein coupled receptors that regulate endothelial uh, integrity, uh, heart rate, and also lymphocyte trafficking. So in the study, you've described potent agonists for two of these receptors. How did you go about discovering these? We focused on using uh, sort of broad chemical libraries covering diverse chemical space and then using an ultra-high throughput uh, screening to define clusters of selective activities. And we screened the libraries against multiple receptors to ensure that those structures that we started on were in fact potent and selective. So your lab also performed a systematic analysis of the selectivity of the compounds identified. What do we now know from these studies? We noticed that we were much more efficient at finding good chemical probes for S1P1, and S1P3 was much less efficient as a sort of random chemical discovery process. So we looked at the active sites, the binding pockets within the receptor. We modeled them and also performed mutagenesis, where we could induce both gain of function and loss of function for receptor selectivity between S1P1, S1P3, uh, and vice versa. And we learned that the anatomy of the binding pocket and the position of various restricting residues determine the efficiency with which we can interrogate broad chemical space and find uh, good chemical starting points. So, and finally, what are the next steps in this project? We have optimized some of the selective agonists, but the most important thing that has really come out of this study is that we've been able to define and begin to define quite closely um, the orthosteric site within the receptor and adjacent allosteric site. And some of these high-throughput-derived selective probes don't replicate the natural ligand at all and actually define new allosteric sites within the receptor that are capable of agonism. And we'd now like to try and extend these structural insights together with a crystal structure to be able to define a rational relationship between selective scaffolds for these sorts of receptors and the chemical space and the binding pockets that they occupy. That sounds very interesting, and good luck with these studies. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much. We are joined today by Dr. Penny Boyning, Assistant Professor in the Department of Chemistry and Chemical Biology at Northeastern University. Hello, Penny. Hi. So you've studied the alpha subunit of DNA polymerase 3. What exactly does this enzyme do? DNA polymerase 3 is a multi-subunit protein complex that replicates DNA in E. coli and, and also in other bacteria. 
It's the main replicase, so every time the cell divides, the complex is responsible for copying nearly all of the DNA in the cell. And um, the alpha subunit is the actual DNA polymerase subunit, meaning that it performs the chemistry of adding each new nucleotide base using the information in the template strand, and it joins the new base to the growing strand. And the complex includes a separate protein that proofreads, that is, it removes the bases that could be added in error by the alpha subunit, and um, because of the anti-parallel nature of the DNA double helix and the fact that both DNA strands get copied at the same time, DNA replication is continuous on one strand and discontinuous on the other. So there are other proteins in the complex that keep the activity of the polymerase subunits coordinated on both strands and keep the machine running smoothly and efficiently. And the DNA binding activities of the alpha subunit that we found might contribute to the coordination of the replication complex. Mm-hmm. Uh, you conducted uh, these single-molecule experiments with optical tweezers. I'm sure many of our listen- listeners are curious how these types of experiments are performed. Can you please describe the method you used in the paper? Yeah, it's a great question. Those experiments were conducted with my colleague, Mark Williams, who pioneered the use of this technique to look at DNA-binding proteins. And in these experiments, a single lambda DNA molecule is tethered between two beads. One is held on the end of a pipette by suction, and the other one is held in an optical trap by two lasers. And the pipette is moved away from the other end to stretch out the DNA, and the force is determined by measuring the deflection of the laser beam as the bead moves away from the center of the laser trap. When the DNA gets stretched to high forces, the two strands separate, creating single-stranded DNA. The DNA is then allowed to relax by moving the beads closer together, and the double-stranded DNA reforms. DNA-binding proteins alter the forces needed to stretch the DNA, and using that information, we can determine the double-stranded DNA binding activity of proteins. After the DNA is melted by force to create single-stranded DNA, the DNA is allowed to relax, and it re-anneals unless proteins are bound to the single-stranded DNA. So the amount of DNA that remains single-stranded tells us the amount of single-stranded DNA that is bound by the protein. In the paper, there are some interesting results on DNA binding activity from single DNA molecule stretching experiments. Can you tell us what you observed? Yes. When the DNA was stretched in the presence of the alpha protein, we observed two main changes to the stretching curves. First, the transition from double-stranded DNA to single-stranded DNA, which typically occurs at about 55 piconewtons under the conditions that we used in the study, was increased to 65 piconewtons in the presence of alpha protein. This means that it takes more force to undergo the transition to single-stranded DNA because the alpha binds to the double-stranded DNA. And second, when the DNA was stretched and allowed to relax, the DNA did not completely reanneal. In fact, much of it was left single-stranded, which demonstrates single-stranded binding. And then by making protein truncations, we were able to isolate the two different binding activities to specific protein domains. So what were your major conclusions from the study? So we showed that the tandem helix-hairpin helix motif is primarily responsible for binding double-stranded DNA, and that the OB-fold domain in the C-terminus is primarily responsible for binding single-stranded DNA. And we were able to quantify the two different DNA binding activities of alpha under physiological conditions and show that the binding is relatively tight and therefore likely to be physiologically relevant. We also found that the single-stranded DNA binding activity is very unusual. Unlike many other single-stranded DNA binding proteins, alpha doesn't actively melt the DNA. Rather, alpha binds to single-stranded regions of DNA that are already exposed. And so we concluded based on our observation that Neither full-length alpha nor the C-terminal region containing the OB-fold domain lowers the force required to melt the DNA. And that suggests to us that alpha binds single-stranded DNA that is already created from some other DNA replication process, which we thought probably is the 
template strand or single-stranded DNA that's created during proofreading. And in fact, there's a paper in press from Tom Stites' lab describing a crystal structure of alpha from a different organism that suggests that the OB-fold domain actually binds the single-stranded template DNA that is entering the polymerase. Well, that's really interesting. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Sure. My pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks to all of you for listening. Join us next month for more ACS chemical biology highlights and interviews with our authors. To learn more about our journal, please visit www.acschemicalbiology.org.